0: Um, A famous theologian named Dallas Willard, we've talked about him a few times in here, he says this. He says, we human beings think about the future as naturally as we breathe. So as naturally as we take breath in and out, we think about the future, which means that we are impacted by the past, definitely aware of the present, but no matter who we are and what you do, we are always, always thinking about the future throughout our entire lives. It's why my kids, though they're little, they say things like, when I grow up, I want to be. Or one of the, uh, one of the ones that uh, goes on in the house is, uh, Appa, when I'm 10, I can drink soda? Yes, when you're 10. Or when I'm this old, I can do this? Yes, when you're this old, you can do this, right? No matter who you are, you, you have this. For many of you right now, for the seniors in the room, it's once I graduate high school, then, and then you can fill in the blank, But there's going to be another one after that. Once I graduate college, then fill in the blank. Or once I get this job, then fill in the blank. Or once I get this promotion, fill in the blank. Once I get married, fill in the blank. Once I buy this house, fill in the blank. Once I get retired and on forth, fill in the blank. So no matter who we are, our picture of the future that we're constantly and always thinking about shapes the way that we live in the present Which is then why another theologian says the decisions we make, especially regarding our use of time and money, are determined by a sense of the future. Which is one way of saying that the quality of your present now, what you do right now, and the quality of the life that you live right now, is directly shaped, yes, by our past experiences, but also, and maybe more importantly, by our understanding of the future which I think then we would all agree that we all would want to really get our future as straight as we can get it, right? We want to know, and we should have our understanding of the future as right and correct and as good as we can get because it's going to directly and largely shape how you live now. And for all the seniors in the room, you know this to be very true. Many of you are deciding on what colleges to go to and all these things, and yes, you think that that decision is going to just dramatically and alter your life forever and ever and um, on some cases that may be true on some cases maybe not but i think all of this is what we've been learning throughout revelation the entire time we've been saying things like things are not as they seem what you see may not really be what is real there is a future in the world indeed there's a future that we're all headed to and it indeed impacts our future but the critical question i want to ask today is how do you see the future Or maybe the question I want to ask is, what is the future you see? Because if you're only thinking about what college you're going to be and maybe that first month when you're in college or that first year when you're in college, it's going to vastly change the way you live and what you do versus if you're thinking about an eternal future that we've been talking about the past weeks, it is that's going to dramatically change what you're going to do. And so far we've learned things like what heaven isn't, we busted some myths about that, and also we learned what heaven actually is. But I wanted to ask a maybe different question. If I were to ask you today, hey, could you picture heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, for me? Draw a picture of it, what would you come up with? If I gave you a canvas, it doesn't matter whether you're a good drawer or not, as you know, I'm a terrible drawer. Some of you in here are very artistic. But if I gave you a canvas and a picture and colors and everything that you needed, and you could picture and draw a picture of the new heaven, the new earth, what would you come up with? I imagine some of you would probably draw a picture of like a lush, foresty, green, like majestic garden where we would be kind of frolicking around enjoying all that there is to enjoy, free and as carefree as we all can be. Which would make sense because we mentioned last week that Revelation isn't really an ending, but it's another beginning And in the beginning, we started out in a garden. Would make maybe sense that we would end up back in one too. But no matter what picture you have, I think what you're picturing the new future or the the heaven, the new heaven, new earth would be. If you had to picture it, you're probably thinking of whatever it is that your dream destination might be. Maybe it'll sound something like this or look something like this. You have the sun glistening off the water, the sound of the waves crashing all around you, the cool ocean breeze flowing through your hair, the soft golden sand tickling your feet, the smell of the salty beach coupled with the funnel cake that's being fried up behind you, surrounded by great people, great food, lots of laughter as you waste away the day without a care in the world. Is that how you picture the new heaven and the new earth? Or perhaps you pictured it like this a, gri- a brisk morning wind, a damp morning dew, the snow tipped mountains in the distance, the smell of the pine wood and a morning cup of coffee, the lush greens of the forest, the bright oranges of the sunrise, and the valleys for you to navigate and explore, the expanse beyond you, your playground to climb, find, and soak in. Essentially, if I were to ask you to picture heaven or draw, you probably picked one of those YouTube videos that you watch of those exotic destinations of the people and their GoPros, you know, and all the things where they jump into the waters and you got all that cool videos and you got the, you know, the drones flying all over the place, all these things, you probably picked that and that's probably what you pictured the new heaven and the new earth looking like. You and I getting away, as it were, and spending it vacationing forever and ever. Am I right? Is that how you picture it? If that's how you picture it, I have bad news for you. (laughs) it's wrong (laughs) it's not the way the new heaven and the new earth is going to be and you might at this point be like wait pastor wait, wait 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 you said last week i paid attention i took notes That you kept on going on and on about how you're going to enjoy the best fried chicken you've ever eaten. You're going to go riding around on your motorcycle, whatever it is. That motorcycle will be some version of it that you can't imagine. Why is it that my dream land, my dream vacation land, isn't an appropriate picture of what the future holds? How come you can have what you want, but how come I can't have what I want? Well, I think based on what we've read in Revelation so far, John tells us that though there will be certain moments like our dream vacation, I think, there will be beaches and there will be lush forests and gardens and the nature of things like that. But the new heaven and the new earth won't be our dream vacation destination. Sorry to break it to you. But the new heaven and the new earth, whether you like it or not, will simply be a bustling city, or what scripture calls the city. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. What John sees in the future and for all eternity is a city. And I think it's appropriate, no? Because I think most of us today here in Houston and around the world and most of the people in John's day would not be able to picture life apart from a city. It's kind of like whenever we, I drive to like a retreat center or whatever, I'm driving down the highway and you see that random house in the middle of like nothing. I always ask, "Go, hey, do you think you could live here? We're driving back on the way from the SLC retreat and Andrew Jung was sitting next to me and I'd be like, yo, do you think you could live here forever? And he's like, yeah, actually I would like that. And I was like, you crazy. Because I couldn't. I'm far enough away from the city as it is. And I live in Katy, right? And I live, everyone thinks I live like millions of miles away, it's just, but it's just right there. I can't picture life apart from a city, and none of you probably could either, if you're really being honest. And in this way, then, life isn't a beach, as some people like to say. Life, even in eternity, won't be some dreamland where you play 24-7. Life in eternity, sorry to break it to you again, is much more real than maybe what we imagine maybe this is why I can't vacation for more than like a week or two. It drives my wife crazy, but we go on vacation, and after a little week, I'm literally like, okay, can I go home back now, please? Can I go back home? It doesn't matter where we are in the world. I just want to go back home for whatever reason. But even for Christina, who loves to vacation, and she loves vacationing, there's a limit to her vacationing. Even for her, maybe after three weeks or a month, she's like, i got to go back home. The vision of the future that John sets for us, and therefore our future as Christians, isn't what we might call an otherworldly reality. No, 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 no. It's a remaking of this reality. Eugene Peterson says, Heaven is more, far more, but the more is not some new dreamland. It's the completion of what is and not an escape from it. Heaven, then, is a redeeming, a making whole, a fixing up of the reality as we know it now. It's why Jesus says, Look, I am making all things new. And if you understand the implications, you can't make anything new unless it's already here. He doesn't say, I'm making new things. I'm making all things that are new. So again, I want to ask, and for the final time, and by the way, this is the last sermon in the whole entire Revelation series. But I want to ask, as we finish off, this. Are you sure, are you really sure that you want to spend eternity in the new heaven and the new earth? Because again, how can we actually say we want to spend eternity in heaven, quote-unquote, if we don't know what heaven is, or worse, don't even like what heaven is going to be? Now you might say to me, Pastor, wait a minute, I don't believe you. How do you know, how do you know, that heaven won't be the way that I dream it to be? What makes you right? Well, because it's what John tells us. It's what Scripture says. But before you get frustrated and disappointed, the thing I, want to like to, I would like to discuss today is that by the time we really understand what the new heaven and new earth is going to be, what the city is going to be, I think that hopefully we will agree, all of us in here, that the city is absolutely the best thing that we could be headed for. That God can be bringing down to us. That it's way better than any dream scenario that you can dream up in your mind. Because your dreams and my dreams are very finite. They're limited. But the one who has dreamed up the future is the one whose imagination is limitless. So as we finish off Revelation and celebrate the day, today's Palm Sunday, the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, I think it's altogether very appropriate to see what the new Jerusalem is going to be like and how this new Jerusalem is the place we want to be forever and ever. Cool? So let's dive deep. And for time's sake, uh, we won't read the same scripture. We've been reading it for three weeks, um, but for time's sake, we won't read so. uh, But let me pray, and then let's jump into what this new city is going to be like. So pray with me. Father, we give you thanks this morning as you say in scripture, Behold, I'm coming. Look, the new city. Look, I'm making all things new. You promise a future for us, and we pray that we would dive deep yet again into what that future is going to be, into what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be when you come again, that indeed, that's the place we want to be forever. And because we see that future, that's the future we think of, we see and we anticipate and desire that that would change and transform and alter the way that we live in the present, even redeeming the failures and the hurts of the past. Father, we pray that you would do this. You would speak through me and that you would indeed help us to hear and help us to know, and in knowing have life and life to the full. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the new city. So to begin, we have to examine what city life is is like, and why God would make eternity, the place you and I are going to spend forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and on and so forth, a city. Okay? But first, what do you and I know about cities? What we know about cities, particularly through Scripture, is that cities aren't very good. The Bible is not a fan of cities, I hope you know. Cities, for the most part, are what's known in the Bible as anti-God. And there's good reason for that. The very first city ever recorded in Scripture is the city of Enoch, built by the first murderer ever in Scripture. His name is Cain. And that city was destroyed by the flood, the Noah flood. The second city that propped up was Babel, built directly in defiance to God to make the world apart and try to live as best as they can apart from God. And that also was not long-lasting. Cities generally are a place of violence and arrogance, forgetful in defiance of god abusive and harmful to human beings consider new york city do you know the history of new york city new york city was built purposely to be an entirely secular city which means that there was not to be any religion in new york city whatsoever which is why for 15 years after it was founded there was no church of any kind it was built to keep religion out all religion not just christianity all religion and even the holy city, Jerusalem, the city where God was supposed to do his thing, the city where Jews are supposed to be, and it was supposed to be the best city in the world, even the holy city was the place where Jesus is tortured and sentenced his death, though he was completely innocent. Jerusalem, back in the day, had become known for things like child sacrifices, unlawful sorceries, prostitution, and much, much worse. It's why I think Jesus, in some ways, rides up to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on his donkey, overlooks the city, and then he weeps for them. So it made me think, if this is the way cities are, and think about the cities, more so than the country, it's in the cities where the terrible things of the world, they happen. So if this is the way we understand cities, surely the new heaven, the new earth, eternity, would get us as far away from the city as possible, No? Haven't we had enough of cities already? Don't we deserve some peace from all of this? Why model the new heaven and the new earth after cities? In particular, why call the new Jerusalem, which means that the old Jerusalem is the model upon which it's built. Why model after such a terrible city, the city that killed Jesus himself? I mean, it's a proper question to ask, I think, because if you and I are having a rough day or having a rough time, and you kind of need some mental restoration and renewal, what do you do? You go away. And where do you go? You go to the wilderness. You go to some resort, some oasis, right? Some countryside, some resort. Or maybe you go on a cruise or whatever. But you get away from the city to kind of clear your mind and find renewal. So why the city? God could have done anything else, built anything else, had anything else in mind but the city. And the reason why I think God chooses a city is this, because God is not a man, you know what, forget it, trash it, it's all hopeless i just get a new one type of a God. God isn't some, I can't wait to get rid of this piece of crap. God isn't some use it, abuse it, and lose it type of a God. No, he's a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of redemption, a God that takes everything that is lost, takes all that it seems broken, taking what is corrupted beyond saving, what is pointless and what is hopeless, and making all those things completely new. Because our God is a, you know what, this city's broken but even in the brokenness, there's beauty and goodness, even in the worst of them kind of God. Which is why I think then he decides to build a holy city. One that has the architectural blueprints, blueprints of the old city. One that reminds us of the old city, but one that is completely new. It is, as Eugene Peterson calls it, the invasion of the city by, or sorry, invasion of the city by the city. Consider this quote that he uh, gives to us in his book. He says, We enter heaven not by escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification, the making new and right of the place in which God has placed us. There's not so much a hint of escapism in St. John's heaven, there's not a long, eternal weekend away from our responsibilities but rather the intensification and healing of those same responsibilities. Heaven is formed out of the dirty streets and murderous alleys, the adulterous bedrooms and the corrupted courts, hypocritical synagogues and the commercialized churches, thieving tax collectors and traitorous disciples, a city, but now a holy city. God takes everything that's terrible about the cities we know and makes them completely new, and that's where we are going to be forever and ever. And look at the building blocks of the city. In, this, in, in John 21, it says that the foundation, the 12 foundation stones and the 12 gates of the city have inscribed on them the name of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus, right? So let's kind of break that down. What does that mean? So far, what we've seen is that the new eternity, the new heaven and new earth is going to be some remaking of the reality that we know. So if you don't like the world that you live in, guess what, the new world is going to be very resembling of the, new, of the world that you live in now, but somehow new. But if you look at the foundation stones and the gates, the places where you enter the city, the place upon which the foundations are built, what you see is that on them are inscribed on them are the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus. And if you know the stories of the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 sons of the original Israel, which is Jacob, it's not some sort of hall of fame, some sort of Christian hall of fame. No, 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 it's actually the opposite. If you study the histories and the stories of the 12 apostles, or the 12, uh, 12 uh, tribes, what you find is things like brutality, fraud, very violent and violations of sex, cowardice, and all sorts of things. If you need one example, look up Judah and, ta- Judah and Tamar in Genesis. It's not pretty. But what you also find in these not-so-pretty and broken and ridiculous stories is that God is continually redeeming and saving the wretched people who didn't deserve to be redeemed. Or the 12 apostles, right, which is a different name for the 12 disciples. We actually don't have as much on their stories as we do the 12 tribes of Israel, but what we do have isn't very good either. The 12 of them are some random gathering of people that shouldn't belong together. And actually, we only know quite a bit about three of them, Peter, James, and John. We know a good amount about those three. For them, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, and Matthew, we literally have one sentence or like two sentences on them at best. And the rest of them, do you even know who the other ones are? Can you name them? We know literally next to nothing except for maybe their names. Interestingly, we know more about the guy who betrays Jesus and then hangs himself, Judas, than we know about the guy who replaces him as a part of the 12. Okay? But for whatever reason... God decides that the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, all of them in their own right, either obscure and unknown or absolutely ridiculous in their stories, they are going to be the foundation of the new city. God could have chosen anything else to build it upon, but he chose them to build it upon. So clearly, it seems to me, the city that we'll enter into for eternity isn't anything quite like the city of our dreams. It won't be some city in which the walls of the city hall, right? Every city has a city hall. It's not going to be some place where you enter into city hall and you're going to expect to see trophies and pictures of the heroes of the past. It's not going to be a place where the great legends of our lives are going to be swept up into the Lord that makes the city. It's not a place where we're going to be like, oh my goodness, do you remember so-and-so? Do you remember so-and-so? They were the great ones. You're not going to see that in this new city. And you might be saying, you know what, Pastor, that sucks. Straight up, it sucks a lot. Why would anybody and why should we wanna go to a place like that? I mean, TBH, it sounds boring, unremarkable, and completely and utterly unattractive. The new heaven and the new city, new heaven and new earth, they need a new PR person coming in to make the city look interesting and fascinating. Because if not, who's ever wanna go? Who's ever gonna want to go there? Why should I want to go? Who is ever going to want to go to a city made from the stories of losers and dimwits and people who have terrible pasts? Why should I want to go there? I want to go to a place that celebrates the heroes, celebrates the great people, celebrates the successes of the world, a place that inspires me and motivates me to be better. Why would I want to go to a place that's quite boring and the opposite of inspiring? But think about it. Is this new city built upon the tragedies and the stories redeemed of the people of the past who we do not celebrate, is this really a place that nobody would want to go? Or ask yourself, is that kind of a place actually not better than the place of our dreams? Do you really want to go to what we might call heaven on earth? We use that phrase a lot. Rather than the city that Jesus has built? You probably know the answer because you know me. The answer is no. But more importantly, why, right? Like, back it up, Pastor. Like, why should we actually want to go to this place? Why are you saying that the new city and the new earth is the best thing for us and where we want to be? So let's dig in. Let's not forget what we learned so far up up until this point about Revelation and particularly the new city, the new heaven and new earth. This new place that we're going to is going to be one without hurt, without pain, without tears, without curses, without nothing that takes away life, but everything that gives it. Everything we've learned the last two weeks, they still hold. They are still true. But what we've learned today is that the new city isn't some dream vacation land, some escape from the, ter- from the tragedies of the world, but rather is very reminiscent of our reality today, but yet somehow not quite. That on one hand, it would, on the surface, sound better, it seems like, to go to a place that seems nothing like what we know now, right? Most of you would probably agree, Pastor, my life is not that great. All that glitters isn't gold. This place can be a lot better if I'm willing to admit it. The life I live is subpar at best. So why would I want to go to a place that's built on the memories of this place? But think about it, okay? Truly think about it. If heaven were a place of heroes and their trophies, their legends and the lore, a place for the truly legendary, then truth be told, heaven would not be a place that has anything to do with a life like mine. And you will not find me there. Perhaps the stories of the heroes and the legends and the lore would make heaven more attractive But what is the point of the place being more attractive if I have no access to it and even not a chance to access it? No? Are you confident that you would then make the new heaven and the new earth if it was a city built on the legends and the stories of our heroes, the trophies and the victories and so on and so forth? Are you seeing that indeed this is why the new heaven and the new earth has to be the city built upon the old city? Because no matter how evil you and I may be, no matter how obscure and insignificant your life or my life might be, God is building a city and has built a city in which the foundations are the very evils of my world, the very obscurities of my life, but redeemed and made new. That is exactly the city that I need and want to be in forever because I can make it somehow Take your darkest secrets your deepest pains and we're not leaving them behind no God is saying I'm making them new The city is built on the very hurts and the pains But they are no longer hurtful and painful, but a reminder of the glories of the newness of the new kingdom. Our God is a God who is making, has been making, is making, and will continually make all things, and especially the terrible things of our life, and make it the best things about the city, the stones, the foundation gates, the things that pearl, the things that are bright and lifted. And how fitting, because today's Palm Sunday. The day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey towards a city that has zero idea of what it's doing. A city in which Jesus weeps over. See, Jesus, I think, walking into Palm Sunday, walking into Jerusalem, he knew what was going to happen, right? Clearly he knew what he was doing He tells his disciples, go into the city, go into Bethany and find me a donkey. It's just going to be sitting there. Take it without asking the owner. And if he asks, why are you taking my donkey without asking, just say, the Lord needs it. And he's going to let you go. And that's exactly what happens, right? He rides in the city knowing exactly what's going to happen, that they're going to shout for him. They're going to do all these things, but then indeed they're going to kill him. He knows that the city of Jerusalem is broken way beyond their imagination or their know-how. And maybe it's because the city kills Jesus Maybe it's because they kill him that they get to serve as the model of the new city. You see, if Jesus was a God who would make eternity a dreamland we all think we want to be in, that as great as the new dreamland, our dreamest vacation that we might ever be able to imagine, No matter how great that place would be, I and you, we would be nowhere near it. Because to enjoy such a place, for Jesus to enjoy such a place forever, he would have to say, all these crappy, sinful, terrible, wicked people, i got to destroy them all. Lay waste to them all. Because they don't deserve a place like that. I don't deserve what they're going to do to me in Jerusalem. And they certainly don't deserve my See, I think for God to do that, it's easy. Most of the world's leaders so far in history have done such things. When the ship that they're riding on is sinking, what do they do? They abandon ship and they say, get rid of it, hit the reset button. But we must remember, when God, create, when God created everything in the beginning, he declared it Good. Which means that in our original state, in the world's original state, it could not be improved upon. There is no better version of us than what God had created in the beginning. Which means that you, yes you, and yes me, all of us, we were created to be perfect. And when we were first created, we were perfect. Which is why there's no reason to abandon us, throw us away, but rather God is going to make us new, like we were in the beginning, like we were all intended to be. That's why Jesus does what he does. It's why he goes down, it's why he comes down to us as a human, because our bodies are meant to be perfect. And he's going to find a way and make them perfect. It's why he was crucified in his body buried in his body, resurrected in his body, because the intention from the very beginning was for us to live in this body, on this earth, in a place where we can taste, smell, see, feel, hear, and the rest. It's why when Jesus then ascends into heaven and says, I'm coming back, he ascends in his body, not in some sort of spirit thing where he just... And all of this, I think, leads me to the part that I'm most excited about when I think about the new city. In chapter 22, 4, John says this. They will see his face. We, you, I, all of us will see his glorious and beautiful face. And you might be going, Pastor, what's the big deal? There's other things that are probably bigger than that. I mean, last time I checked, you said there's going to be no tears and no hunger, no pain and all that stuff. Why is seeing his face a very, very big deal? Why? It's because the face of someone, you probably recognize, is the place, is the thing that is most revealing and intimate about a person. Someone's face is where you can see their joy, their pain, their hurts, their livelihoods. You can see everything in their face. It's why when you and I hide, what's the first thing you do? You hide your face. It's why when you miss someone, the thing that you want more than anything else is to see their face. It's why when you watch the movies and people are being held hostage or whatever and they haven't seen him for a long time in those kind of situations, what's the thing that they say? Let me just see her face or his face, right? Because that's where you know. It's why for me, after a long or a painful day perhaps, the only thing that I really want to do more than anything else is to go home and put my daughter Kara down to sleep. Now, you might be saying, like, that's kind of weird. Like, what? And the reason is because when I put Kara down for bed, we have a routine. She lays down on her bed. She puts her head down on her Pokemon pillow. She grabs her dog thing named Mia, and then she puts the blanket on over her. I put my arm right underneath her head, under the pillow, and I look into her face, and I say, Kara, should we sing the doxology? And she goes, yeah. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We sing the whole thing. And then right after that, I pray for her. Father, would you help Kara sleep well? Would you help her to be the person and the woman that she's meant to be? Growing up to know your life and blah blah blah. And then say, Jesus, pray in Jesus' name we pray. And she goes, Amen. And then generally what happens afterwards is I get real close. I tuck myself in and I get right eye to eye, nose to nose. And then I'll start kissing her on her forehead, on her eyes, on her nose, and I'll say, Nun popo, ko popo, ipopo, imal popo. And then, of course, because she's a crazy person, she has to have me kiss her shoulders and then her chest and then her stomach, and then she thinks that's funny. And then after a little while, I have to go. <laughs> Can't just sit there saying goodbye forever. So as I'm about to try to leave, most nights as I'm leaving, I say, Kara, I love you. Good night. 잘 <laughs> 주무세요. And then most nights before I go, you know what she does? And this is the part that I'm waiting for. As I'm about to leave, she then takes her thumb out of her mouth drops her, or the Mia just kind of rests on her shoulder, and then she takes her, her sweaty two-year-old hands and then places them right on my face, and then she draws it close and pulls my face right next to hers. She usually gives me a popo, and she says, I love you, Appa, and then I walk out. It's the face. It's the face of someone that you want to see and that you yearn for. It's why Moses... When he cries out to God in the beginning, he says, God, show me your glory. And what does God say? He says, you cannot see my face, for no human can see my face and live. It's why then God takes Moses, puts him in a cleft on the rock, puts his hand over him, walks by, and then after he walks by, lifts his hands, and then literally Moses gets to see the backside of God, but never his face. It's the longing of the human heart, the very deep and earnest longing. The deepest earning and longing we have is to see the face of God, is to see the face that gives me security, the face that gives me identity, the face that gives me hope and safety for all of eternity. The face that I hope that I can see and believe is true. And in the new heaven, in the new earth, Because the city is built on the faces like mine, not the faces of the heroes that we cannot imagine, because of that, I think is why we can see God's face, the face of the Lamb. This is why then John calls the city the bride of the Lamb. And if you remember, if the city is the bride and we are the bride of the Lamb, then all of us are the city. We are the city. God is bringing the place where we are supposed to be. It's our home. We are the city. We are the bride. Eternity and forever. All things will be redeemed. All things will be made new. And we, as the city, as John says, we, our lamp, our source of light, will be who? What? The lamb. That's about as intimate and lovely a picture that I could ever imagine and hope to draw you see God does not forsake us nor leave us as we know no our God isn't building some future hoping to be rid of us because of our weaknesses and our imperfections No, he's going to bring a new city, knowing that it is built on the very foundations of the weak and the pained and the ruined, all things made through his death and resurrection. Perhaps this is the reason why Jesus gets to the city of Jerusalem and weeps over it, because he knows it's not not what it's supposed to be. He knows what it needs to be, what it should be, and what it will be. It's just that the city does not know any of this yet. And because we don't realize... That the one who loves the city and us more than anything else, the one who can redeem the city more than anyone else, is coming to save us. All we will do is end up killing the one who's come to save. But as you know, Jesus rides into the city nonetheless, because he plans to save the people of the city so that he can build us a new city made from the brokenness of the city. See, the only way I and you get into this city is if he rides into that wretched city of Jerusalem and says, I know you're going to kill me. I know you're going to hate me. I know you're going to do something absolutely terrible, something that you should not do, yet I'm going to take it, and through my death, I'm going to show you that you can't kill me, and therefore you can't kill yourself. And I'm going to rebuild this thing. But unlike anything you've ever seen before, and you're gonna live in it forever and enjoy me the way you're supposed to enjoy me and my face. It's why he says in twenty chapter twenty-two, Behold, look, I'm coming. I'm coming to you soon. Soon I am coming. So I want to ask you, is this the future you picture? Because if this is the future that you picture, doesn't it change the quality of your present and redeem the pains of the past? But if your future is some short sighted thing about your, your life being all done when you graduate high school, guess what? You're going to be disappointed. If your future is only about when you get to college and think that college is going to save you from all the things that are wrong, guess what? You're going to be disappointed. If you think that the future is about when you graduate from college and finally get a job and you can start buying things and doing things with your own money, guess what? You're going to be disappointed. If you think the future is about some person you're going to marry and that person's going to make your life incredible, guess what? You're going to be disappointed in all things unless our future is of the one who can build the the perfect future, then you and I are going to be disappointed. What is the future you see? And if you're catching the implications... If you're thinking of the future that is eternal, then all of your immediate futures, your colleges, your graduations, and all those things, those, too, will be perfected in the name and the glory of Jesus. Is that what you live for? Is that what you want? And maybe this sounds harsh, but don't walk out of here and say nobody told you. If your vision isn't on the vision of revelation, from the very beginning we' were saying, we well, need to see things with revelation glasses. If your, vision, if your vision isn't on the future and the eternity that lasts forever, then you are going to be sorely disappro- disappointed, my friends. So as we await the soon and coming king, who will bring to us the city of our dreams a city that we would not have wanted had we chosen for ourselves, but the city that is perfect for us, a city where we belong. Then I pray and I hope that until he comes, that the future, that the vision of that future and the city will then redeem your city, this city now, that you will enjoy life the way that we were meant to, here now, Taste a bit of the new heaven, new earth, as we are saying, here and now and therefore for all eternity. Behold, he says, I am coming soon, soon I am coming. So yes, Lord, we pray and we ask, come, Lord Jesus, come. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would do the work in us. And Father, as we sing and worship and respond to you, I pray that you would help us to to think about what it is that we're seeing. Rescue us from our inadequate and small vision of the future. Rescue us from not thinking big enough From thinking that our past and our pains and our hurts are too big that we want to be rid of them all. No, 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 God. You tell us that you're going to redeem them all. That you are not a, you know what, forget it. It's useless I'm going to throw it away and make something new kind of a God. No, you are a God who takes all things, no matter how hurt and broken and terrible they might be, and then you redeem them and use it for the future. Use it to be the picture of redemption and perfection because we, we, yes, us broken we, were meant to be perfect. We're meant to be redeemed. We're meant to be everything you designed, everything of your dreams. Oh, God, and help us to live in that, to not be satisfied, with a subpar life but know that there is goodness to be had help us to see and to wait the soon and coming king and the city which you will bring that you have made for us to live in forever we give you thanks God for you are unlike any other Amen. Join us as we sing. Uh, Philip, I'm going to ask you if we could sing um, Man of Sorrows and uh, You're Beautiful, but You're Beautiful first.